the Lax Factor Podcast. What is up, College Across fans? You're watching episode 264 of the Lax Factor Podcast. I am your host, Ted Hoost, and today we have Division I uh, quarterfinals that we have to talk about. We have Division Two and Division Three semifinals that we have to talk about. We're going to lead off with Georgetown, Virginia, and then we're going to get into the Michigan-Duke games from Saturday. We will follow that up with talking about Penn State and Army. They had a very good game, and then uh, Johns Hopkins and Notre Dame, who both played yesterday. And then we will talk about... Tufts, Salisbury, Mercyhurst, Lenore Rhine, um, Lemoyne. We'll talk about a bunch of other games here that were played at the other levels. Uh, before I get into it, as always, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell if you're on YouTube. If you are an audio listener, no matter what the platform, if it's not Spotify, you may want to consider switching from, say, Apple Podcasts to Spotify because the video episodes are available as part of one so you can listen to the audio podcast on spotify flip your phone horizontal and then watch the highlights while i'm talking about highlights and things of that sort so you may want to switch from apple podcast to spotify plus i get no revenue from apple podcast but i do get revenue from spotify if you watch it there so i urge everybody screw apple Watch it through Spotify. You know you got the app. And then, as always, you can go to laxfactor.com and watch all the videos. We put everything. We Everything has a, an accompanying blog post that goes with the, the video. And then you can also get gear related to the podcast to support us, or you can get T-shirts and crap like that as well. So I'm going to shut up now. We're going to dive into the first game we're talking to uh, talking about here, Georgetown and Virginia, as I edit my notes here. Now, by far, this was the better of the two games that was played on Saturday. Georgetown was good, but just not good enough as uh, Virginia both flexed all over Georgetown and then continually checked Georgetown throughout this contest overall. Uh, the story of this game, Connor Schellenberger, Technically, he was the story kind of through the entire game, but specifically early on in this game. He scored the first goal of the game just seven seconds in. Petey pinched, popped, and partied his way to a fast break, hit Schellenberger on the point for an easy quick strike, and it was one nothing Virginia. Petey then won the ensuing faceoff, almost a carbon copy of the first one. He wins it forward, hit Schellenberger on the point again. This time, Shelly busts a quick little hitch to the inside, scored low. Virginia was up 2 nothing just 16 seconds into this game. I'll talk a little bit later about the game that Petey had and why it was a travesty he didn't get credited with an assist on Schellenberger's second goal, at least not by Virginia's box score uh, early, early yesterday. Now, the Hoyas, they'd score two of the next three goals, and they'd get back to within three to two. A nice split dodge from the top middle down the left. He let it go sidearm, and Nunes was screened by a couple of guys. Dordovic stuck that one. And they got back to within three to two. But I think the most important sequence of this entire game uh, hit at about 11.45 left in the game. Dixon had his man hung up. Petey ran underneath him. And Riley, Georgetown's faceoff man, that was I think it was probably Riley, was checking LaSala. He sees Dixon kind of hung up back there by himself. He goes to kind of make a moronic kind of check lost his stick. Dixon hit Petey, who slipped upfield, and then Petey busts a roll dodge on a long pole and buried it. Beautiful goal by LaSala, and a very long description of it, considering how quickly it, to, it transpired. Now, Petey wins the next faceoff, and now at this point, Petey's having a game. He had a goal, an assist, and a handful of faceoffs. One, one technically, he should have had two assists. So, Schellenberger scored his third goal of the game off that ensuing possession with 10.55 left in the first quarter. Another catch on the right wing, quick 
rich, quick hitch to get clear of his defender who over-pursued as he was breaking down on him, and then another easy score with his hands free. This made it 5-2 Virginia just four minutes and five seconds into the game. Petey's goal, that made it 4-2. Schellenberger makes it 5-2 just four minutes and five seconds into the game. And as was the case with Delaware and Georgetown a year ago when Delaware upset Georgetown in the first round and sent the Hoyas packing early, that quick start by Virginia to jump out to that 5-2 lead proved pivotal as we got down the, down the stretch because from here, Georgetown pr- proved that they deserved the stage. Brian Minicus, he scored. That tied the game up at 10s with 12.25 to play in the third. He rolled on Co- Cole Kastner at X. It was actually a hell of a dodge. Got maybe half a step, but then wrapped it around as he got above GLE. And a, a, a legitimately beautiful goal. Schellenberger caught a shorty matchup on the wing, zigzagged his hands free, and stuck it lefty to take the lead back. Georgetown's first tie of the game when the score was 0-0 lasted seven seconds. Their second tie of the game at 10s lasted all of 51 seconds, and you're going to see history repeat itself here. Nikki Solomon scorched one past Noons, uh, right, put it right past Noons, right temple. That nodded things back up at 11s. At first, I thought Noons was going to want that one back, but the replay shows it was just an absolute laser, just smoke that went right past Noons' head. Noons, is often is the case when, a, when you shoot at a goalie's head, they'll sometimes double clutch as they're trying to find the ball and flinch at the same time as it's coming right towards their dome. Uh, but that tied things back up at 11s. Now, Virginia didn't want the Hoyas to get too full of themselves, so 53 seconds later, Thomas McConvey got a step on his man dodging down that left wing towards GLE. Schellenberger faded his man at X, received the outlet from McConvey kind of on the opposite side of that crease. With hands free, he hits a cutting Peyton Cormier for an easy dunk with 8.54 left in the third quarter. That broke the tie. So once again, they had a tie for seven seconds. They had a tie for 51 seconds, and and, uh, Georgetown was able to tie it up for 53 three seconds, and that would be all she wrote. That was the last time the Hoyas would threaten the Cavs all game long. Schellenberger would go on to find Peter Garno for a strike that made it 15-11 UVA as they stretched that lead. After Dordovic got one back for Georgetown to make it 15-12, to Schellenberger would score a goal and then dish to Dixon, giving UVA a 17-12 advantage. Every time the Hoyas did anything remotely good, Schellenberger and the Cavaliers were there to crush both their spirits, their dreams, their hopes, and to steal their girlfriend and they did so effectively here. Um, In the end, James Riley didn't have that rough of an outing in terms of winning draws. Riley finished the game winning 16 of 32, and Petey won 17 of 34. Both were sitting at 50%. Now, the difference was Petey generated offense both directly and indirectly. UVA's first two goals were technically assisted by LaSala, despite the fact he was only credited with that one assist, as I said, on the first goal. Schellenberger's hitch inside cost LaSala an assist there. His heads-up play on Schellenberger's sixth goal of the game saved that play. Petey picked up the GB with pressure on his back. He flipped the ball behind the back to Noah Chismar, who initiated the break. He hit Schellenberger on the point. That was an absolute backbreaker for Georgetown, and it was a scenario in which LaSala was in trouble, had his head up, flipped the ball back upfield, actually, to Chismar, and that panned out, and that really was the dagger in the end. Schellenberger was aggressive. It paid off in spades. He finished the game with six goals and four assists off eight shots with a ground ball. Now, that is a monster stat line, a hell of a job by a Tewartan finalist in Schellenberger, but I want to be very clear. This was not Schellenberger putting the team on his back and carrying them to victory. This was legitimately the Virginia offense just being completely unselfish, 
Schellenberger being in the right place at the right time and ready to perform and own those possessions when he had his shot. So it was a, even though Schellenberger put up 10 points and as we look into the stats, not a lot of other guys had huge games. um, Everybody contributed. It was, it was bumping the, it was, it was pretty much offensively always being willing to push the ball to the next guy upfield. You know, like you draw the slide, you hit the next guy who's open as you're trying to swing it. Schellenberger just happened to be that guy. He scored three goals off scenarios, you know, kind of playing point uh, off breaks. Uh, so three of his six goals were were you know pretty much just fast breaks that he stuck nasty shots on because he was aggressive and got himself to the middle of the field with his hands free. And then some of his assists were just him being at X, just being patient, being smart, keeping his head up. But it was legitimately a total team effort from Virginia offensively here. Uh, the long pole trio of Kastner, he had four cost turnovers, three GBs. Sawstead, two cost turnovers and three GBs. And Bauer, two cost turnovers, two GBs. Uh, that made life difficult for the Hoyas. The Virginia defense did a very good job pestering Georgetown all game long. They won their matchups. Uh, when they didn't noons, he was kind of on and off all day, but he ended up stopping 50% of the shots he faced, 14 saves versus 14 goals against. So that, that Virginia defense did a very good job in a game where possession was for the most part even. Bottom line, Virginia was the better team, uh, but Georgetown has absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. They did battle, and the loss was more about how good Virginia is when everybody's healthy, I think, than anything than it said anything about Georgetown. Outside of the fact that Georgetown deserved to be there, they hung with a very good Virginia team that appeared to be on a mission. Now, I did call this one. I said Virginia by one to three goals. At one point, I was going to lose it because Virginia looked like they were going to win by four. I would have been happy with that because I had a bet, uh, a parlay, two-game parlay on the Saturday's games that I had Virginia cover. Covering, and within that, like that, that goal with seven seconds left or whatever that Georgetown scored screwed me and I lost that bet, but it did get me, get me right here. Uh, as we look at the team stats and note individual stats here for Virginia's website stink to a degree. Luckily I already talked about LaSala and I knew that I had to go off their stat book here. So Graham Bundy Jr. for Georgetown two and two. Brian Minikis, 4-0. Key here, Tucker Dordovic was held to two goals off eight shots with two turnovers. So they they did a good – and Graham Bundy Jr., two goals off 12 shots. So they did a good job of pestering shooters, being on shooters' hands, forcing shots from a little bit deeper than maybe Georgetown wanted to take. Uh, they did a good job of keeping them out of the middle of the field, and it showed here overall. As we go into Virginia stats overall, like we said, Connor Schellenberger, a monster day, six goals, four helpers, ten points, eight shots – um, all eight of his shots were on cage, a ground ball, and just a turnover. Xander Dixon was two and two, the Slim Reaper. Peyton Cormier two and one. Petey Lasala one and one, and like I said, he was kind of one and two. Uh, and then uh, Griffin Schutz two and zero. Oh. So the the supporting cast did a great job. And like I said, it didn't show up in the stat book for some of these guys who have been putting up points. But what what you saw if you watched the game was an offense that was playing well, and it just ended up being that a bulk of that offense ended up going through Schellenberger, and he was ready to deliver. Great to see Schellenberger healthy, though. I've been saying all year, it's obvious Schellenberger isn't healthy. There have been people chirping in the comments saying, hey, he's got a wrap on his leg and this and that, and uh, it's good to see him look good. He looks like he felt good. He played really good, really, really good, 
and he put up 10 points on the day. So hell of a job by Schellenberger. And uh, that's it. We're going to shut up. Virginia's going to have to take on Notre Dame here in the finals or semifinals, and we'll talk about that in Thursday's, either Wednesday or Thursday show, depending on when I put it out. Next game we have to talk about here is Michigan and Duke. Now, by the end of this game, I realized that the guys left playing in this tournament that are actually Twarton finalists are really good at playing lacrosse uh, because O'Neill was fil- is filthy, and he had a filthy game. I said going into this one in the preview show, I did not think that Darby and Michigan were going to have a whole lot of fun guarding O'Neill on Saturday. That proved true. O'Neill scored the first goal of the game on a very physical inside roll on the left side of the field around GLE. He bullied Darby a bit, was able to kind of drop it around Hunter Taylor. Darby didn't give up a lot of ground, but O'Neill just kind of beat him to the spot and then wrapped that around Taylor for the first goal. He scored less than a minute later, a clear attempt for Michigan that went south. O'Neill picked the ball up off the deck, busted his ass upfield, and buried it high to low, giving Duke a 2-0 lead. And as they said in the telecast, when you let O'Neill get started early and he starts feeling good, shit's going to snowball for you from there. Bryce Clay tied the score up at 2 each with 2.41 left in the first quarter, a man-up goal dished by Josh Zawada. Clay lost his man in the crease just enough to get his hands free, busted out the twister, and uh, you know now Michigan's back in the hunt here. And then just like the prior game, a three-goal run from Duke put this game out of reach in terms of the macro environment of the game, and it was Duke's three killers that played the role of market makers in this one. If you're a crypto or a stock guy, you'll see what I did there. Uh, Duke, uh, Duke defensive midfielder Aiden McGuire, he stripped Jackson of Michigan, busted upfield, hit O'Neal on the point, who banged the ball down to Williams for the low-angle finish about seven, eight yards off the crease, left side there. It's now 3-2 Duke. O'Neill would dodge from the top left corner into the middle of the field, get a step or two, ran through a totally limp-dicked attempt to double-team him. It was a terrible double-team attempt. He ran through it, scored another high-to-low on the run, nailing the bottom right region of the net, 4-2 to Duke at this point. Andrew McAdory dodged down the left alley, got underneath his man at GLE, and then dove back up top to the front of the crease while burying it, 5-2 to Duke. Josh Zawada... He'd get one back, cutting from the mid to, you know, kind of mid to low crease area on a man up play with 8.23 left in the quarter. Now it's back to 5 3. Michigan's still alive, but. But the killers continue here. Brennan O'Neill scored off a quick dodge with 4.06 left in the half. Quick hit down the right alley. Scored it right-handed on the run. Duke is now up 6-3. to three. O'Neill can do it left-handed. He can score right-handed too. Jake Naso's wings won the ensuing faceoff for Duke. The ball ended up in Will Frizzoli's stick. He hit McAdory on the point. McAdory stepped down and wrapped one around the approaching Michigan defender. Perfect screenshot. Scored low and right. Now it's 7-3 to three, Duke. And that's kind of how this game went all day. Duke got a lead. Michigan would score a goal and pray for some balls to bounce their way and said balls never bounced their way through most of the game here. O'Neill finished the game with six goals and a dish, a cause turnover and three ground balls. Andrew McAdory and Dyson Williams both put up hat tricks. Now as a team overall, Duke took 36 shots and they put uh, and they scored 15 goals. They put thir- 25 of those shots on Cage. Now Hunter Taylor, Michigan's young goalie, he had just kind of earned himself the starting spot after very few after a few very good games in the Big Ten tournament. Had his hands full here. He stopped just eight shots, gave up 15 goals. But I applaud the Michigan coaching staff for not benching him. It wouldn't have mattered who was in Cage. The the, the looks that Duke was getting 
Brendan O'Neill with his hands free from anywhere inside 12 yards is an absolute horror show for a goalkeeper. O'Neill himself was a man among boys. The Michigan defense was on its heels all day long. I do not put any of this loss on Hunter Taylor. Uh, Kenny Brower, Duke Longpole, forced four turnovers, picked up three ground balls for the Blue Devils. Tyler Carpenter, Duke's LSM, he forced two turnovers, picked up five GBs. Jake Naso did just enough at the faceoff dot for Duke. He won 14-27 against that really capable duo in Justin Wheatfeld and Nick Rowlett. Rowlett was rough. He only won one of seven, uh, so Wheatfeld ended up getting the bulk of the draws. He won 12 of 20 against Naso, but overall Naso, I think, won the day by a single faceoff going 14 and 27. Now, Duke played physical on defense. They had six penalties, and Michigan went three of six on those extra man opportunities. Coach D is going to absolutely want to make sure they don't commit six penalties next weekend against Notre Dame because Notre Dame's uh, man-up offense is just a bunch of killers, and they do a really good job. So they would, six penalties against Notre Dame will be far less forgiving. And actually, they weren't these these penalties weren't even forgiving. It just didn't matter in the scheme of the game that they had given up those penalties and those goals. Uh, so credit to Michigan for going 3-6. of six. That was a good job, but Duke is going to want to clean that shit up before next weekend. Wilhelm was excellent in cage, 14 saves, 8 goals against through 57 minutes of play. And I have to credit both him and the Duke defense for quieting a really hot Michigan offense. The Poles beat on their attack. Helm defended their six admirably. But what Duke did well, and a bunch of the teams that won today did a good job, is you can't put a, you got to put a premium on protecting the middle of the field. If you're going to give up outside shots, if you have a capable goaltender, which most of the teams at this point in the tournament do, um, protect the middle of the field. Don't give guys shots within that kind of that ten yard circle in front of the cage. You want to try to force the shots along the fringes of that. If you're going to give up shots to midfielders, you want them going down the alley, shooting on the run as they're kind of going against the cage versus letting them run right down that seam or maybe even pinch that seam in a little bit as they're dodging too. So credit the Duke defense for keeping a Michigan offense out of the middle of the field where they had been having a lot of success in their lead up to this game. Now it's another game I'm going to call that I nailed it. I predicted four to six goals, uh, but I was trying to be nice legitimately here and not look like I was just a, a hating on Michigan, especially because I had to protect my neck a little bit also, but I was off by a goal. What, what, what was the final score here? Duke won by seven. I predicted four to six. So I'm going to give myself a W for that one for a picking the winner and also almost hitting the spread on that one. And then as we look at the individual player stats here, if we see what Michigan did, Josh Zuwada, two and one on the day off seven shots. Uh, Michael Bame, who's been killing it for Michigan, did not have a great day. He was held to just two assists, no goals off six shots. So like I said, a good job by the Duke defense there. Brennan O'Neill, six and one off eight shots on the day, three ground balls and a cause turnover. McAdory had three goals off four shots. Dyson Williams, three goals off seven shots. And then, you know, a bunch of other Duke guys scored here and put up a point or two. Uh, as we get down into the goalie situation, as I said, Hunter Taylor, it was a rough outing in terms of the the what he you know number of saves that he made, but it, like I said, it was not his bad. The Michigan defense had a hard time keeping track of Duke offensive players. But Wilhelm here, fourteen saves, eight goals against. He did a hell of a job, as I said. Jake Naso here um, ended up picking up fourteen to twenty seven, and uh, that's it for the most part. We're gonna you know Duke's going to have to take on who does Duke take on? Duke must take on Penn State. Virginia plays Notre Dame. I think that's how it goes. Now I'm just drawing a blank here, but who cares? That game's over. Duke is in the final four, and we move on to the next game, which was Army and Penn State. Now, this game to me had an odd feel. 
Army jumped out to a two-zip lead after Gunnar Fellows and Jacob Morin each scored. Both were unassisted goals. But Penn State would take over for a while, scoring the game's next six goals, and then overall nine out of the next 11 goals from this point here. By the end of that run, the Nittany Lions held an 8-3 lead. TJ Malone had scored four goals over that stretch, including the first goal of the run, as well as the last two goals of that run. Now, Army recovered. They scored four of the next five goals, capped by uh, capped by a goal that saw Jacob Morin put, in, put just an absolute heater past Frassi, and that made it 9-7 to seven Penn State at that point. Now, Kevin Winkoff, the Binghamton transfer that I've been talking about all season here for Penn State, uh, he came up, he's come up big in some key moment, moments for Penn State this season, and he did so again with 7.38 left in the game, an absolute filthy rip on the run. He dodged from the corner down into the middle of the field. The, this kid shoots on the run as well as anyone in the country, and he was a huge get for Tambroni. I just want to say that. Uh, that made the score 10-7 to seven at that point. Army would fight back. They'd get back to within a goal after Finn McCullough scored up the right side from X. He used his body to get his hands free, put it high and right past Frassian. Probably one Frassian would like back because the shot didn't have a lot of smoke on it, but it was well-placed, and it was an awkward approach. Uh, so, I, you know, it's not Frassian's bad here, but I, I'm thinking he's watching a replay thinking he definitely had time if he had guessed properly at getting to that one. Um, uh, Penn State's defense would come up huge down the stretch, though. They'd force a shot clock vi violation. Uh, oh, wait. Yep. Yeah, that's where I am. Uh, they'd force a shot clock violation on Army with 2.11 left in the game. Army couldn't hit the cage over the course of that possession. So put, uh, credit Penn State for getting on the shooter's hands on every look they gave up. There was a defender right on that player's hands. They were sailing shots, putting shots wide, and they forced that shot clock violation. That was huge. Army would end up... Uh, They'd end up with the ball with about 40 seconds left in the game, and they failed to get a shot shot off right after the buzzer. It was a weird deal where it looked like they turned the ball over. It ended up being a Penn State penalty. Army had that man up play. They looked terrible over the course of that man up possession. Zero flow, no riz whatsoever. They had a hard time even just getting passes around the outside clean. Credit Penn State, though, for coming out and kind of breaking up the flow of that man up play because I think that really cost Army getting a look at all. Um, and as they were getting, you know, as time was getting low, 12 seconds or so, they tried to force a crease. Ball ends up on the deck. And like we we saw, Army scores a goal with zero time left on the clock. They end up saying no goal. Win uh, goes to Penn State. They rush the field. All that crap. Uh, Jack Frassian, he's a huge factor in cage here for Penn State. His 11 saves were big, especially after he had given up those two early goals to Army uh, and only made two saves over the, over the course of that first quarter. He ends up with nine saves over the course of the last three, seven saves specifically over the course of the second half as Army scrambled to try to get back in the game. So his effort can't be played up enough. Uh, I bet Penn State coaching staff, I bet you they're not too mad at uh, Chase Mullins for going 9 of 23 at the dot against Will Coletti. Coletti won the battle. He wins 14 of 23 overall, which you would think is just a, you know getting your dick kicked in. Um, but Mullins did just enough to keep things reasonable. Penn State's defense did the rest. They played well. Once again, they kept Army on the fringes. Uh, one thing that I didn't necessarily like was Penn State was leading this game by a little bit, and as soon as Army started getting a little bit of momentum, Penn State started playing that zone defense that they've deployed a couple of times here. I believe they deployed it against Princeton as they started climbing back into the game against Princeton before winning. And in this case, I felt like going into that zone, one of Army's strengths was shooting shooting from outside. And I talked about early in the year that before Army kind of figured this offensive thing out, 
one of their problems was they they hadn't figured out how they were who was going to be their big Dodgers yet, and I had felt like their outside shooting was what opened it up for some guys to dodge a little bit more because they they were able to spread defenses out because you couldn't give up those 10, 12 yard shots. You know, you had to go out and kind of cover them a little bit more, which made it a little bit easier for Army Dodgers. So I felt like Penn State maybe did Army a little bit of a favor by playing that zone, and it, and it kind of paid off in terms of Army points up to that point, but maybe it also spread that scoring and that, 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 um, that run out a little bit. Cause it's always a little bit more difficult to find a seam against a zone and get a shot off than it is against man, man to man, when you can just run the ball here. If we dive into the statistics here, as I said, uh, Bailey O'Connor one and two for army gunner fellows, three and O Jacob Morin, two and O Reese Burke quiet. That was key. One and O here. Uh, Will Coletti did dominate the dot 14 to 23 with a goal and five GBs. So he got a lot of help from his wings overall. But that, that I think was part of the key here was that Penn State was able to force those balls, those face offs. They kept, they kept it from becoming a consistent transition. Uh, hence the, the, the wings for Coletti having to get involved so often. Uh, Penn State offensively. TJ Malone has been just absolutely incredible for Penn State this year. He had four goals on the day. Jake Morin, three assists. Matt Trainer, 2-0. Mac Costin, 1-0. Kevin Winkoff had that one huge goal. He took five shots and only scored one. So Penn State got it done. And then, as I said in cage here, Farassian, 11 saves against, nine goals against. Knox, I had saw people calling for uh, uh, Alberici to bench Knox Dent, which I thought was stupid. I, he didn't have a terrible game. Penn State shooters were getting their hands free from some very precarious spots if you're a goaltender and you're facing these shots down. So I didn't feel like Knox Dent, he didn't play his best game, but I don't think he played a game that was even remotely worthy of uh, of getting benched. Now, if we kind of go in here and we look at the quarter-by-quarter quarter saves. You know, he had a rough outing in the first half for sure as Penn State jumped out to that lead, especially that second quarter, but he settled in, as did the Army defense. I don't put that scoreless or that saveless quarter as much on Dent uh, where Penn State scored three goals as I do kind of just on that Army defense not being fully in sync at that point. And Penn State offensively was just doing a really good job of controlling the ball, taking care of the ball. Uh, so on and so forth. So it ended up being a hell of a game. It wasn't as close as what the score indicated because, like I said, it, you know, here entering the fourth quarter, eh, I guess it was a two-goal game entering the fourth and at one point 10-7. But like I said, I, I, I felt like Penn State was going to win right up until Gunner Fellows got him back to within um, – or no, Finn McCullough got him back to within a goal. You know, So I wasn't thinking Army had much of a shot even at this point here with 341 left, but I proved to be – Army fought back and they did a good job. What we saw in this game was the same thing we saw in Georgetown. Army deserved to be there for sure. Penn State proved, though, that they were just a better team on the day, and uh, that was how it rolled. And that's it. We're going to stop talking about this one. We're now going to talk about Johns Hopkins and Notre Dame. This was probably the most boring game of the day, I would of the whole weekend in terms of Div- Division One games overall. Um, solid, but not a whole lot of action overall. Uh, I always had a feeling that Notre Dame was eventually going to get ahead of by enough, and it you know wouldn't end up being scared by the end. Hopkins did do a decent job of keeping it semi reasonable early on, especially over the course of that first and into the second quarter. But then Notre Dame started kind of rolling from there. Russell Melendez he dodged through X up the right uh, and buried it stick side low on Liam Entman. That tied it up at fours just a minute into the second quarter. Here we can see that goal uh, unassisted, unassisted goal by Melendez. Now, 
Notre Dame, they'd go on a three-goal run started by Chris Kavanaugh. He got lost out top as Jack Simmons was dodging up the left side from X. Simmons hit him with time for Kavanaugh to step down into it. He scorched it past Marcel. Stick side high, nonetheless. Now it's 5-4 Notre Dame. After Notre Dame forced a turnover on a Hopkins clear, um, Eric Dobson, he dodged into the middle of the field. He ripped one stick side high on Marcel, 6-4 Notre Dame. Pat Kavanaugh would dodge up the right side from X, and after a quick spin to add a little bit of flash, he'd hit Simmons on the crease. Simmons put it low and right, completely out of Marcel's reach, and the score was now 7-4 Notre Dame. Hopkins would get two goals back. Collison would score the Jays' sixth goal of the game, a dodge up the left side, well covered. He just shot and scored anyway, and the score was 7-6 in favor of the Irish. But a four-goal run out of Notre Dame would spell doom for Hopkins. Jake Taylor made it 6-8 Irish on a quick stick from the high crease, and then Jalen Seymour would make it 11-6 Notre Dame after a nice dodge into the middle of the field, a lefty snipe on the run, and then Hopkins would never sniff victory again from there. And as we see, as we they came down here, here was that four-goal run made it 8-6, and then that turned into an 11-6 Notre Dame lead. Hopkins scored three of the last four to make it semi-more, you know, a little bit more respectful, Respectful, but that was it here. Respectable. What the hell is my problem here? Uh, points for Hopkins. Matt Collison, he scores two goals. Uh, Jacob Angelus, you know, two assists. Russell Melendez, two goals. They just didn't get quite enough from everybody. The the, the Notre Dame defense pestled, pe- uh, pestered the shit. I believe it was Chris Fake that guarded Angelus through most of the game. So he got harassed all, all game long. Melendez scored a couple of nice goals, but he got pestered all game long. Degnan was kept, you know, from, from doing big things. So uh, it was a, a very good job by the Notre Dame defense, which we expected uh, for that to happen here. If we look at the turnovers, they didn't take the ball away a lot, but Conlon, he gets a, a takeaway. Actually, that's it. I think Conlon's the only long pole that ended up with a takeaway. Uh, if we look at the faceoff dot here, Johns Hopkins did a very good job at the faceoff dot between Naruski and Tyler Dunn, but it didn't matter because, like we said, Notre Dame, uh, they, they didn't do it today, but Notre Dame's good at just not getting burned off the faceoff dot, even where they lose the bulk of the faceoffs, and they have kind of all year long. So credit to them for that. Uh, Liam Entman, 10 saves, 9 goals against. Tim Marcel did not have a great outing. 6 saves, 12 goals against. Once again, I do not put that on Marcel. The trend here, the teams that won the games this weekend, what they did well was they got to the middle of the field with their hands free and got good shots off. And the teams that lost this weekend were not nearly as successful getting into the middle of the field and getting quality shots. And it just came down to the better teams won for the most part is what happened. The teams that were more complete had the better defense. They won these games, and I think I, I think that puts me. Uh, wait, you know what? I will. I was almost going to say that that put me at four and zero on the weekend, but I think I picked Army. I did. I picked Army, so I nailed the Duke game, uh, four to six goals. I got that one. Army, Penn State. I picked Army by one or two goals, so I did get that one wrong. I picked Notre Dame by three to five goals, so I got that one right. So I did kind of nail the weekend down. I just uh, missed that one game. I picked Army instead of Penn State, so I am a dum-dum. So we're going to stop talking about this game, and we're now going to move on, and we are going to talk about Tufts and Rochester. RIT. I almost called them Rochester Institute of Technology like a big nerd, but I'm glad I didn't. Tufts continues with their undefeated season here up at, up to this point. Semi-close early. It was 4-4 four to four after Caleb Commandant. Uh, uh, Com- I always forget how to spell his name. I think it's Commandant. 
he scored with 225 left in the first, and that tied things up at four. At four, Zen, about the time I turned this game on was right here, where they scored and then Tufts there over the course of the second quarter. They have this stretch right here between 531 in the second quarter and four, well, shit, 351 in the second quarter, where they scored four goals just kind of back to back to back to back over less than a two minute period. So it was Tagliaferri scored the first one of that stretch. Kyle Adelman scored the second one of that stretch. Tommy Swank scored the third one of that stretch, and then it just kept going from there. It was 10-4 by the end of that run as they were approaching about halfway into the third quarter. Tommy Swank scored to make it 10-4 on a dish from Ethan O'Neill. And then it, RIT would try to claw back, and they just could never pull it off. One thing I noticed in this game as well, tied into all the rest, uh, um, Tufts, I, I normally would say, hey, Tufts was getting into the middle of the field with their hands free and they were scoring goals, which is kind of true. What I noticed in this game, especially as RIT tried to start scraping back and get, trying to get back into the game, was they were taking a lot of low-angle shots and missing the cage completely, whereas in a couple of the highlights that I've rolled, Tufts was kind of st- had guys stepping up field taking very low-angle shots, and they were burying those motherfuckers. So Tufts shot the ball better than RIT did. I think that you can kind of credit the Jumbo's defense for being on guys' hands, pestering guys as well. But Tufts, you know, they, they definitely outplayed RIT and then just executed a little bit better than RIT did as well. If we look at what RIT did, uh, Seth Grottenthaler, if that's how you pronounce that, 3-1, and one, Luke Pilcher, 1-1, one and one, TJ Hendricks, 2-0. and oh. uh, But you look at up and down the row here, uh, you're, you're used to seeing RIT guys putting up a few more points, and that did not happen on the day. RIT also got absolutely roached at the faceoff dot. So if we look at that battle here, Victor Salcedo, 5 of 11, and then Mason Cohn, 14 of 19. I talked about that a little bit in the preview show that that would factor, and it factored heavily because they totally dominated the possession battle. And when you really look at the score, based on the possessions, it doesn't look quite as bad for RIT overall. Tommy Swank was 5 and 0 off 16 shots. He's the one that was sticking those corners from those low angle shots here that he was taking. Jack Boyden, very good at lacrosse. He was three and one on the day. Kevin Christmas, two and two. Kevin Christmas is just an absolute beast of a human being. That dude is a big man. What's he tipping the scales at here? 6'6, 230. Uh, that dude is. So he's a big boy. If we dive into the individual stats again, wanted to come down to the goalies here. Connor Garzone, 13 saves, 11 goals against for Tufts. Will Starrett, not a bad day in cage for RIT, 15 and 15. Uh, 15 goals against, 15 saves, but in the end, it was the Jumbos that win and they punch their ticket and they will play against Salisbury in the finals. Salisbury in the finals. Salisbury? I don't know how the hell to pronounce it. Um, formerly known as Salisbury State. Uh, they're going to face them in the finals. Salisbury beat Christopher Newport on Sunday. That was Sunday's game as well. Christopher Newport jumped out early and took the lead. They were up 3-2 uh, at 520 in the first. Drew Miller scored. But then, uh, as we saw, every time a team here, the losing team, would get ahead, the winning team would end up going on a run. Salisbury ended up scoring, what was it here, seven of the game's next eight goals. They end up taking, and Salisbury takes a 9-4 lead off a Braden Glushikow. Just another brilliant name from a D3 guy here. Uh, 9-4, Salisbury led at that point. And then, yes, 
Yes, Christopher Newport would get back to within 9-7, but another three-goal run would sink them. Cross Ferreira, Jack Dowd, and then Cross Ferreira scoring again, and that was all she wrote for Christopher Newport. We look at points here for Christopher Newport. Drew Miller, 4-1. He was their big scorer on the day. Did a good job at the faceoff dot overall. Who won that? That's uh, Warner Cabanis. Like I almost called him cannabis in the last show here. It's because I smoked too much cannabis here today. Um, And then we look at Salisbury. What they did, Cross Ferreira, four and three. He's just, you know, Cross is just doing cross things to teams here. Seven points on the day. Bryce Bromwell, two and one. Jack Dowd, one and one. And we look at the goalie battle. Nicholas Ransom for Salisbury, eight saves, eight goals against. Zach Hanway did everything he could for Christopher Newport, 16 saves, 12 goals against. So he had a hell of a job, did a hell of a job in cage, but they couldn't, they couldn't win the game here. So we're going to end up with Tufts playing Salisbury in the finals. I think these teams are two and one against each other or two and two they might be evened up in terms of meeting each other either in the finals or over the course of the last five years I can't remember I'll look that up and we'll talk about it in the uh, preview show but yep it's going to be a Tufts versus Salisbury division three final so that should be fun to watch the next game we got to talk about here it was another undefeated team uh, Lemoyne was undefeated heading into this game this was the last game that Lemoyne will play as a division two team they lose to Mercyhurst 11 to 10 in this one. A hell of a game overall. Lemoyne jumps out to a 3 1 lead or, uh, late in the first quarter. Joey Pezzamenti, uh, he scores to give Lemoyne a 3 1 lead. Mercyhurst would slowly but surely claw back. They'd end up tying the score at the start of the third quarter. Six up. Kevin Sprague scored. They would then take the lead 14 seconds later off the ensuing uh, face off. Stephen Morley on a dish from Sean Doran. Doran's a face-off guy, I believe. And then uh, LeMoyne would take the lead back 8-7. Mercyhurst would tie. LeMoyne would take the lead back 9-8. Mercyhurst would tie. LeMoyne would then take the lead back 10-9. Mercyhurst both tied the game up at 4:35 in the game. Nicholas Mabe scored a goal unassisted to make it 10-10. And then with a minute 55 left in the game, Jeremy Phoenix Lefebvre scored unassisted to win the game for Mercyhurst 11-10. Uh, as we dive into the stats... Mercyhurst just spread their scoring out throughout the roster here. Nobody had more than two points. They had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys put up a point, and then they had three guys put up two points each. But it was uh, Quinn uh, Simonson. He went two and zero, oh, and then it was Jeremy Phoenix Lafabra or Lafab. 2-0. Yeah, I'm not even going to try that. Face-off dot. Sean Doran, he was supposed to be a key and a factor in the game. He was. He had a goal and an assist. Won 14-25 draws and picked up 6 GBs. So he did a good job. Mercyhurst defensively. Charlie Gleason, 2 cause turnovers. Steven Katz, Two cause turnovers. If we dive down into Lemoyne, Kevin Sheehan, three goals. Uh, Ethan Lown, two and one. Just not good enough overall for Lemoyne. And then we look at that goalie battle. It was a very close battle in cage here. It's uh, Matt Vavanese for Lemoyne, 12 saves, 11 goals against, and Brett Olney, who I thought had played D1 somewhere for some reason. I do see that he's semi-local. He's, I think, an Irondequoy kid, Olney is. Uh, but I don't know why I know his name. Maybe it's just from watching and covering Mercyhurst for a little bit. Uh, he had a hell of a game, 13 saves, 10 goals against. He ends up winning the goalie battle, and Mercyhurst ends up beating Lemoyne for like the first time in 11 tries or something crazy like that, and they advance to the finals, where they will take on Lenore Rhine, who beat Limestone. So what we have here is the 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 um I, I believe Limestone was a higher seed than Lenore Rhine in terms of the tournament, even though their ranking isn't that way. 
And uh, obviously, Lemoyne was a higher seed over Mercyhurst, but Lenore Ryan kind of rolls. They jump out to a 4-1 lead. Colton McCracken unassisted. Uh, they jump out to an 8-2 lead. Jarrett Huff scored from Torin Eccleston, uh, and then they just rolled from there. It was a shit show, and they end up winning 18-11. to 11. Uh, I, I do see here that Limestone was able to get back to within 14-9 to nine early in the fourth quarter before Lenore Ryan just rattled off four goals in a row. They were up 18-9 to nine before giving up the final two goals of the game to, to Limestone. If we dive into the points, Kyle Hatcher was 4-2 for Lenore Ryan. Miles Moffitt was 3-2 for Lenore Ryan. Torin Eccleston was 3-2. Uh, so a hell of a job there defensively. Victor Powell, I knew that. He had a good game. Three caused turnovers, four GBs. Liam Farrell, two caused turnovers and a GB. Faceoff dot, kind of a wash here. Uh, which was what I was hoping it was going to be uh, for Lenore Ryan anyway. Matthew Mancini wins 14-31. And as we come down here and we see Tim Ladner won 17-29. So he did get the better of his matchup. But overall, it was to a degree a wash as um, as uh, uh, Lenore Ryan did a better job forcing turnovers on the day. Uh, Limestone, what did we get out? Uh, McGarry, uh, Gar- Michael Michael McGarry, 3-1. and one. Jason Thomford, jeez. Uh, just a crazy game, crazy name again, one and three. Uh, so that's not bad. Not bad at all, but not good enough. And now we're going to have a Lenore Ryan and Mercyhurst Division Two finals, which is crazy. I was really hoping to see uh, Lemoyne win a national championship on their way out of Division Two, but this is kind of dope, too, that they didn't. And now they're going to be playing D1 ball next year as other people are competing for the national championship. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, that is going to be it. I'm not going to go into too much more here. Uh, we're going to ha- we're going to uh, do I'll probably do the show Wednesday, the preview show Wednesday or Thursday, as I've been saying. I like to wait until Thursday to give this video a little bit more room to breathe and get me some views. And then I put the preview show out Thursday leading into Saturday. We'll see. But like I said, check Wednesday. If it didn't hit Wednesday morning, it's going to be up there on Thursday morning here. A little bit depends on my work schedule. Um, uh, but it was a great weekend of lacrosse. I ended up drinking way too much both Saturday and Sunday. We set the pool up. Uh, as I had said, I was doing the pool this weekend. Uh, now I will have the last show while I'm still shooting ropes will be on Wednesday or Thursday. And then, like I said, Friday, I get that vasectomy. So it will be the, you know, dry shooter podcast or whatever, you know, whatever, uh, whatever we're going to call it. It's going to be podcast Monday will be the first time that I do a podcast with my, my vast deference not being connected to my junk anymore. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting show. We'll see how sore I am even having to sit here in, in this chair. Uh, the whole time. But one way or another, whether I have to stand up and do the show or not, I'm going to put a show out here Monday. And uh, uh, But maybe give me till Tuesday. Maybe if my nuts are a little sore, I might need till Tuesday to put the show out. So, But I'll let you know. I'll hit you up on Twitter and all that crap. So that's it, guys. Uh, try to, you know, I haven't done a good job of saying this here, but you can find me on Instagram, Lax Factor Podcast on Instagram. We're on TikTok now, too. I don't put a whole lot of content up on Instagram and TikTok yet, and I should, uh, but I will this offseason a lot more. Um, Twitter, it's just Lax Factor. Facebook, it's just Lax Factor. YouTube, it's just Lax Factor. But go follow us everywhere. You can go to laxfactor.com, watch the videos there. You can get the swag, T-shirts, and all that crap. And like I said, if you're an audio listener and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it may behoove you to switch to Spotify because then you at least have the option of watching either or the video or listening to the audio. So you can do that too. So that is it, folks. I will be back Wednesday or Thursday. Check on both days for the preview show for this upcoming weekend. And uh, that's it. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And Hoost is out.
the Lats Factor Podcast.